The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by Tom Mills. We'll be talking about the sorry state of the British media, the Labour Party's proposed media reforms and why it is that the media class is so hostile to the prospect of workplace democracy. As always, you can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast and you can also follow on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. And if you like the podcast, uh, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Before we get to today's interview, I'd just like to give a big thank you to the show's supporters. The podcast now has 34 paying patrons. That's some way off the show being sustainable in the long run, but it's a, it's a good start and it's hugely appreciated. If you are currently not a supporter of the show and would like to become one, uh, you can do so at the Patreon page, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Tom Mills is a lecturer in sociology at Aston University. He's the author of The BBC, Myth of a Public Service, published by Verso Books. And together with Dan Hind, he's the co-presenter of the excellent Media Democracy podcast, which I strongly recommend checking out. His academic work is concerned with the ideas and practices of powerful groups and actors and the social networks that influence policymaking. So in his um, alternative McTaggart lecture on the media that Jeremy Corbyn gave last month, um, he made a number of proposals uh, regarding media reform, including providing funding to support public interest journalism, potentially even through a, a windfall tax on the digital monopolies such as Google and Facebook and so on, um, in order to create a public interest uh, media fund. Another proposal was reducing government control of the BBC by making some positions on its board elected positions voted for by staff members and by license fee payers. Mm. Um, he also proposed, and, and this I think we'll probably talk about this as this seemed to cause particular consternation in media, he proposed that the BBC publish more transparent equality data, including for social class. Then there was the proposal to give journalists the power to elect editors and uh, and the directors of the the news companies that they work for. There was the the, the proposal for creating a state funded rival to platforms such as Facebook and also the British Digital Corporation. Um, before we go into into more detail about those proposals and what you think of them, uh, I wonder if you could just say why you think that significant reform of the media landscape in the UK is is necessary. Why why do you think we need to perhaps be looking at some of these proposals? Yeah, I mean, you know, the answer is kind of obvious, really. I mean, every, everyone who um, works on this area or shows any interest in it, sort of the starting point for any discussion of the media is is that in order to have a functional democracy, you need to have a functional media system. Um, now, in the UK and in other countries around the world, the, the media doesn't perform well that sort of function that's allotted to it in, in liberal theory. Um, 
we we tend to think of the, the media as being sort of one or, or people often talk about the media as being one institution as different sets of institutions and in a way understanding the, the problem with the media as a whole means you know you need to think about um the different sort of character of of these institutions and you know that you can divide this i suppose in the uk between the private press and uh, the broadcasters, which both of which have a very distinct kind of history and um, regulatory structure. And then, of course, there's um, the new media um, digital space, which, uh, of course, has an overlap with those um, with those existing institutions. So um, in, in terms of why the problem needs to be addressed, um, well, it, it really comes to the question of do these institutions perform the function which um, which, which they themselves uh, claim to claim to hold, which is uh, being able to facilitate um, public debate, being able to hold power to count, and so on. Um, and you know, all the evidence suggests that, for, for various different reasons, uh, they're not very good at doing either of those things. Yeah. So um, I mean, perhaps if we take a, a very current example, so. Um... Over the last few weeks, we've obviously seen the the huge uh, furore about um, uh, labour and anti-Semitism. Mm. What do you think that row tells us about the state of the British media at the moment? Yeah, I mean, the I mean, a couple of things really. Um, first is that the commitment to accuracy, which is a very sort of fundamental journalistic value, isn't isn't really very strong. Um, a lot of the reporting on anti-Semitism is either shows a very misleading picture or in, in some cases it's reproducing um, things which more or less amount to complete falsehoods. Um, you know, we've, um, people are probably tired of hearing about this stuff, but we saw it with the um, so-called reef gate, you know, with the, um, the, the cycle of reporting. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, embedded within that notion of journalism is a sort of sense of the, the job of reporters is to follow a politi um, political claims made by significant people. And the other thing, I think, is the extent to which the press, for all of the sort of um, claims about the declining power of the press, is still able to shape the overall agenda for the media and for the broadcasters. Now, to come back to the question of what's wrong with the media, um, I mean, we can talk about the press and the broadcasters in a bit more detail, but in terms of the political orientation of the press, uh, it's overwhelmingly right-wing, and it has been since the 1980s. Um, it's politically partisan. Um, it's largely inaccurate um, in its reporting and sometimes very consistently inaccurate. So if you look at the kind of um, publications which have been leading the charge against uh, the left, not only over this issue, I mean, this is just the latest and probably most sort of furious manifestation of a campaign uh, against Jeremy Corbyn and which is itself part of a much broader longer historical campaign by the press against the left um, it's coming from publications which are owned by um, billionaires which are have been supportive of the conservatives now in terms of the balance of the press you know you can look at the readership of each of the titles and as a whole, like the national um, daily newspapers, and it looks fairly balanced. But um, if you then start to look at the distribution of partisanship by circulation, what you find is this, this overwhelming um, balance in favour of the right-wing titles. Now, 
this doesn't quite have the political effect that people tend to assume because the the mass papers don't set the agenda for the for the broadcasters in quite as effectively as some of the more um some of the more respectable right-wing titles but the overall effect of it uh is that you have a sort of division in the press between kind of right-wing populist press um for for reasons of it, it's very very difficult to 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 maintain a um high circulation um center-left daily newspaper um, that disappeared really in the mid 20th century the the possible business models have been and that's because of the level of advertising revenue and capital investment required for for print media um the, the the models which have thrived have been the sort of uh liberal or right-wing um newspapers which target more affluent consumers and then newspapers like the sun and uh the daily mail which have the sort of uh, yeah, middle, middle class to um, working class um, popular readership. The point is that the whole of the press is um, institutionally hostile towards the left. And the important thing to bear in mind about this is that the if you look at polling uh, of public opinion, uh, it puts the press and um, the, that, that section of the media a long way to the right of the British public. Um, now, do people believe what the press um, report, you know, Probably not. If you look at polls, uh, you know, the Sun, re Sun readers, for example, only about 30% of them trust the Sun to tell them the truth about the world. But what they are able to do is um, spread a certain message, try and create certain sort of common sense, certain lines of attack, which then find their way into the broadcasters, which don't so much pick up the tone of these attacks, but they see them as being, um, you know, in some sort of neutral sense, a story that then gets pursued again by the BBC, which is a much more influential and respected publication. Before we do look at the, the speech that Corbyn gave, on this question of, of influence, it's it seemed to me very striking that um, in spite of the just, you know, wall-to-wall -wall coverage, you know, this 24-7 uh, panic and, and smear campaign against the Labour leadership regarding uh, this, this question of anti-Semitism. It, it doesn't seem to have done very much in terms of shifting uh, public opinion. The latest uh, Salvation poll, I think, gave Labour a, a three-point lead. And I think there was other polling, I think, done by YouGov showing that, that public attention on this issue was, was really minimal. You know, it was, it was, it's really not a story that is actually cutting through with, yeah. with people. I, I wonder if, if in some sense we kind of, uh, especially in the current moment, give the media more power than it's worth. That There is this sort of tendency to panic and to, to almost kind of uh, indulge in sort of the folk memory of, of the 80s that the left has when you know this memory of uh, the incredible power of the press and the ability of the press to to inflict greater damage on on labor than currently seems to be the case yeah um i, I think that's the sort of common sense position certainly i i would suspect that um the well for one thing it's difficult to judge what the um, influence of the media was even in that earlier period you know because it's often very difficult to disaggregate people's political opinions from um, the influence of the newspapers that they read or the television that they're exposed to. But that said, I mean, there is some good research, for example, that found that um, The Sun, simply by um, shifting its uh, political affiliation, was able to deliver around half a million voters to uh, one party or another, which would, in some circumstances, swing an election and may well possibly have done that as recently as 2010. Um, now, so so that's in a much more um, recent stage. 
Um, what's different now? I mean, obviously we have the arrival of um, social media, which I think, you know, it's it, it, I, I, again, I, I think we need to be a bit careful about understanding what's changed um, there because it, whilst it's true that social media is increasingly um, prevalent and people can question things online, uh, that depends on being part of, you know, particular politicised kind of communities. A lot of the stories that get um, distributed online tend to be coming from these traditional sources. I would probably look more to um, political sociology to understand what's going on and people's resistance to particular messages. I.e., I think to, to the, the the influence of the media, um, you know, they have to work on people's current positions and where they are in order to persuade, like anybody does. And I think in in that respect, anyway, we need to look at these institutions like the media as you know part of a broader. Um, sociological understanding of um, of what's going on, which needs to incorporate, of course, um, you know, the political econ- the underlying political economy, and the drive towards what appears to be a, more, a sort of hardening of um, political opinion uh, around the left and 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 the right equally. You know, we're in a strange sort of moment now where um, you don't have the source of swing voters that you had during that period, where the ple- press could clearly play a very central role, um, because even if you're able to shift a small amount of public opinion um, under some circumstances, if if there's a certain mobility of voters, a certain um, strata which can be targeted, then that obviously makes the left vulnerable. And this comes back to the sort of new Labour strategy, you know, of like we need to target mar- marginal voters in these key constituencies, mm-hmm. and that means that you have to have the Daily Mail and the Sun on side, right, in order to... Um, ensure that you don't lose those key voters um but that anyway is a very different and i think much more um understated version of media power than than maybe some sometimes people do have on the left i think the other thing i would add to that is uh there's a sort of tendency for people who are very engaged in politics to be much more absorbed in in the news cycle itself and you know to to Hmm. feel like we're um in these constant battles um partly because you know people who who are involved in politics obviously are much more um naturally much more engaged in in the news cycle we're looking for these kind of breakthroughs and we tend to be much more you know much more online like in a bad way i mean and i think there is something to be said for um trying to keep um core heads and not get too sort of absorbed in these yeah constant sort of uh, attacks of the media um, for the reasons you say because the polls often aren't moving but also sometimes it, it appears that attacks from the media can be too much at odds with public opinion that they just become counterproductive you know and I think you know the obvious example of this is was the um, manifesto in the last general election where it was seen as being this huge electoral liability that these policies have been proposed and then the media went on the attack and then actually it appeared that the policies were very popular. I mean, there seems to be um, a kind of a pattern with uh, with the Labour left that they're able to um, cut through if they get the policies right, despite a sustained attack. Um, but I think it's not just about the changing political economy of the media. Um, I think we need to look at the the political economy of um, yeah uh, more broadly and and the way that plays out through you know the electoral system. Yeah, I mean, it, well, it, it seems a, a persuasive way of thinking about the, the shift to the left amongst younger people in particular, doesn't it? 
the sensible centrist line just seems so at variance with people's own experience of, of uh, the economy in 2018 and, and the prospects for decent wages or, or owning a home or anything like that. You know, it, it, that kind of line might have, have worked 10, 15 years ago, but it's, uh, yeah, it's hard to see why anyone would, would, would fall for it. And, and yeah, I suppose... Um, there needs to be that kind of minimal level of uh, seriousness to to the line that you're putting out, that it, it, it's sufficiently in contact with people's experience for it to have any kind of purchase. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, it's probably also true that if you're leading what sets out to be something like an insurgent political project that in any case smears will be less effective. I mean, unless you start sort of um, unless it puts you on the back foot, you know. I mean, we, we you can see this with Trump, you know, is uh, which uh, I'd be a bit reluctant to make sort of comparisons between Corbyn and Trump, but as his enemies do. But in terms of the effect, you know, the, the, the a lot of the American media was overtly hostile to to Donald Trump. But you, you know, if you just act like you don't care and sort of um, you know just sort of take them on, it doesn't seem to quite have the kind of effect that, that people think it will, particularly if the basis for your critique of somebody is, is also um, the basis of your support, if you see what I mean. Right? So if you're, mm. um, that, that's clearly not, that's clearly not going to be an effective strategy to say, you know, somebody who's trying to lead an insurgent campaign doesn't have any respect for the norms of politics or something, which was more or less seemed to be what the, the basis of the attacks on, on Trump were. Or, you know, yeah, someone leads absolutely. a sexist and yeah. racist movement, um, say this man is sexist and racist, you know, it's like, well, if you want to smear somebody, then you need to look at the basis of people's support for them and try and undermine them that way, which is, I think, probably why, you know, the anti-Semitism stuff was, has been a much more effective um, uh, line of attack against, uh, against Corbyn and the left, because, of course, you know, n- nobody on the left wants to see themselves as, as having any involvement or sort of complicity in, in racism. And um, so in that respect, it makes much more sense as a political strategy than saying that, oh, Corbyn's not a serious politician or, you know, he's uh, he doesn't he doesn't wear a tie or whatever, you know, or all of those sorts of things or, you know, he's, he's actually secretly um, extremely left wing. It's just, you know, that's not that's clearly not going to have an effect in, in shaking basis of your political support regarding the proposals that, that Corbyn outlined and obviously these are only suggestions these are not Labour Party policy yet what did you make of those proposals and, and which do you think were the most uh, significant um, well I mean I thought they were very I thought they were a very good set of proposals um, which ones were um, most significant I mean from my perspective you know my my, my background was uh, working on research in the BBC um, so the the aspects which which were of, of, of most interest to me were the proposals for um, for BBC reform and also for um, a sort of movement towards um, the uh, digital space for me were the um, for me were the most interesting elements I think um, I think also in terms of dealing with the press um, the 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 democratization requirement that, that that Corbyn gestured towards was interesting because precisely because it, it it threatened the press and their power in a very clever and strategic way. I mean, the I think it's worth saying first of all that you know none of these 
none of these um, policies, are, like a lot of Corbyn's policies, none of these policies are particularly radical on their own. And this was this was acknowledged in 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 some of the commentary that um, that that really in, taken individually. Uh, none of it is particularly um, is particularly radical. What was interesting about the um, the proposal that the journalists should be able to elect um, editors was that it threatened in in quite a clever and subtle way the the power of um, of the the big uh, media press corporations. Um, but in a way that appealed to to journalistic uh, values. But the reason I think the digital area is more um, is more interesting to me, and the BBC element, is because I think these are the media which are going to be in the long term um, sustainable. So the press remains very very powerful. But if we think of um, an industry as being as, as following a certain trajectory, and in the case of private industries, you know that that usually means a sort of cutting edge of capital accumulation. Um, that's clearly with the digital. And I think, you know, if, if, if Corbynism is going to be an effective movement, then I think it needs to be a movement which is thinking in the medium to long term. So I think that was I think I think those elements of um, how do we reform public service broadcasting and how do we make an intervention into the digital space, which is based on public and democratic values, um, for me, were the most interesting, um, the most interesting proposals and uh, and and. The, the other elements, of course, were, were important. Um, we could maybe talk about um, local news cooperatives as well. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's it's encouraging to see far-sighted policymaking um, in this area. And actually, I think it's worth saying that all of the proposals, in their own way, despite being sort of relatively moderate if taken by themselves, I mean, compared to the sort of um, discussions which were taking place around the media, um, you know, offer much more imagination and sort of far-sightedness than we've, we've, we've seen for a long time. Um, it, it's it's very unusual, actually, to have any kind of innovative thinking about the future of the media coming from the media itself and the sort of policy world um, that surrounds it. Then the main thing they're concerned about with at the moment is this question of sort of fake news and social media and also their own revenue models. And you could see some of that playing out in the responses to, to Corbyn's speech, um, uh, which, which quite cleverly in some ways played to that, you know, with the, with the idea that we should be taxing Google and Facebook. Um, a lot of the media companies, um, by which I mean the press um, and the BBC, uh, they quite like that idea. Um, what they don't like is that the, the money might be going elsewhere and not to them. Which of the proposals do you think most spooked the media? The two, it seemed to me, that, that seemed to cause most consternation was, as you say, the prospect of um, journalists selecting their own their own bosses and, and boards and so on. Mm. Um, and also this question of the BBC being more open about its uh, its social audit and uh, re- regarding particularly the, the social class of, of um, members of the BBC. Well, the, the social class thing was a funny one because that kind of dominated the coverage for, um, you know, first of all there was a period where it's sort of been announced and then after the speech had taken place insofar as there was a discussion that evening you know on the broadcasters and and so on the 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 coverage really focused in on this question of social class which was actually completely uncontroversial by the way i mean the bbc has already started monitoring 
um, the socio-economic background of its staff, and that had been published um, fairly recently, um, data as of March this year. But of course, the media didn't seem to have actually noticed that, and was reporting it like you know that the, the BBC was going to be forced to to do this. I mean this. This was just part of a much longer and even more absurd saga around um, Owen Jones and the um, the, the social economic backgrounds, uh, the class background of, of British journalism, which sort of happens to be a matter of sort of fact, basically. But for some reason, it's, it's, it's very difficult for sections of the media to accept that they are unrepresentative of the British public. I mean, for obvious reasons, when you think about it, because uh, to take an... You know, another industry. I mean, my um, my job. I work in academia. Um, it's also a very middle class um, industry. But the the difference is between you know uh, lecturers and doctors compared to journalists is that doctors and lecturers don't claim to speak on behalf of the British public in quite the same way as journalists do, and particularly tabloid journalists do, who sort of position themselves in terms of their own authority and legitimacy as a, as a voice for the people. So. That really sort of impacts on, you know, political columnists and um, tabloid journalists, uh, the fact that they are so extraordinarily unrepresentative. So the British Social Class, um, sorry, Social Mobility Commission found that 43% of top columnists in the press had been to private school, and that's out of 7% of the population. Um, and a study by, a labour force study by the LSE, found that out of 19 upper middle class professions, journalism was the most privileged and most middle class after doctors, ahead even of, um, of academics. So it's a very privileged sector. They're very touchy about that for that reason. That's why they run with that element. Um, the democratization... I, I always find it particularly striking regarding the, the tabloid press, because it's not, it's not just that they claim to represent you know, ordinary people, but they, they, you know, it's almost this kind of, they try to sort of ventriloquize. Yeah. You read The Sun and it's this kind of peculiar kind of imagined idea of how working class people talk, yeah. um, you know, including vocabulary that, that you know, working class people actually do not use, but it's it's what The Sun believes, you know, that this is how, how people talk. And and then you see these figures on, on you know, Newsnight or, or wherever, and, you know, remarkably... Uh, well spoken and 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 yeah, clearly often from from very privileged backgrounds and is just yeah, the sort of brazenness of it is kind of extraordinary. Yeah, it's a very strange thing. I mean, the the kind of um, tabloid you know affect, it's you know it's quite long lasting. I can't quite remember where, but Orwell talks about this, um, which I presume would have been around you know the nineteen thirties or something about how. Um, in the British press, I think he's talking about the press, it's sort of vaguely recording something here, there's, you know, certain sort of slang that's used that, you know, he says the British working class has got to <laughs> being very acquainted to working class life himself as an old Italian, um, is saying that, the, you know, these phrases just aren't used anymore. Now, whether that's true, I don't know, but it's interesting that Orwell have made that observation at the time. It seems to me that, like, yeah, there's a certain sort of star which the tabloids have always exhibited that people almost don't notice because it's just like, oh, that's how tabloids write, you know. <laughs> and it's just like it's not. Well, I think I think my favourite is is the is the word romp. Yeah. I I don't think people talk about sex romps. No. I think that's solely the sun. <laughs> yeah. Know? Well, no, it's funny actually. Like, there there are there are cliches which you immediately sort of recognise. I mean, it's not it's not just tabloids journalists that do this you know there are particular phrases and i think you know we probably all do it to some extent where 
you you just pick up a particular phrases and they get used and then you know you you almost you almost forget that most people don't actually talk like that but um to be fair that's probably the least bad thing um about the press i i think yeah it's so good so so there was that there was the the sort of weird um social class obsession which um yeah has, has erupted into several sort of extraordinary um and embarrassing twitter storms anyway so i wasn't terribly surprised by that um and as I said, it was not remotely controversial, the proposals, and actually it had been something that had been led on by the BBC, had anyway already been suggested by Ofcom, which is the sector uh, regulator. The um, the elections, uh, the electoral elements, I mean, there were, there were two parts to this. One was the proposal that once um, private media companies went over a particular ownership threshold, that journalists should be able to elect the editors, and that would be a constitutional change that would be introduced uh, this. Um, so, so what does what does a, an ownership threshold mean here? All it means is that you would, uh, you, once you had a particular um, a particular proportion of the overall media market, that therefore a particular legal condition would would kick in, and it, it wouldn't be so different to what you have um, generally in, say, like you know, monopolies and, and emerges legislation, antitrust legislation, as it's called in the United States, where you do a market um, a market test, which would tell you, you know, how, how how diverse the market is, how many key players there are, and after you reach a certain threshold, um, the usual legal remedy is that then you have to divest from some of your assets. But in this case, you would have either that or a different type of legal requirement that would then kick in, um, which I, I suppose would be incorporated incorporated into. Uh, the Companies Act or something like that. I don't know how it worked legally, but the reason why um, they got upset about that is obviously if um, a, a wealthy owner can't would lose their capacity to then define the editorial line of the newspaper, which is the entire reason for owning the newspaper in the first place. Um, so it was a sort of attack on a certain version of the freedom of the freedom of the press which isn't the one that's usually rolled out i mean the the reality of freedom of the press which is i.e the the freedom for capital to control um editorial lines um in newspapers um is different to the the sort of liberal version which is actually to do with the capacity for journalists to um do their job without interfe interference from powerful interests so i think what that did quite cleverly um, is it forced the right into um, defending freedom of the press on the grounds that they're not used to do to do it? Because in order to argue that, and in actual fact, I went on talk radio to speak to the executive editor of the Sun about this, and he was, he was absolutely furious about it. Um, and the reason was, I mean, he, he sort of it was a funny sort of interview, he started sort of shouting about capitalism, saying how you couldn't you couldn't run a yeah, company. Yeah, I, I heard. Right. <laughs> so it wasn't a particularly useful conversation. Um, but 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 the thing the, the thing about that was that he was trying to sort of say that on the one hand it doesn't matter that um, companies uh, own these uh, newspapers because obviously it's it's the editors who make the decision as to what news is but at the same time the journalists themselves shouldn't have the right to decide who the editor is um, that was uh, you know certain it, it does threaten a certain version of of the freedom freedom of press and this was actually the bit that annoyed uh, the, the Financial Times the most um, they didn't like particularly the democratization proposals for the BBC 
um, but also didn't like the proposals, obviously, for their own sector. And what they said was, this is just a model to 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 sort of seed union control, basically. And 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 it warned business that look, if they're thinking about this for the FT and they're thinking about this for the Sun, that you know they're coming for you as well. Before you know it, you know the work the workers are going to be um, running the companies, um, which is you know. I mean, the, I mean to be fair, they probably have a point about that to some extent, right? I mean, you you know this this all fits in with the um, you know alternative models of ownership report as well, right? Obviously, it's not the caricature that the FT imagines, but it but it is part of a broader um, project to 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 democratize the economy. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely in in step with that, and this has been um, you know the left's. Um, broadly been the less position on the you know the capitalist press um since since the 1970s really the 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 alternative that the benites were trying to develop in the 1970s was that we democratize the economy and of course you know that's the kind of agenda which has uh, captured most of the sort of um policy innovations of of corbynism around the around political economy um probably more than the initial movements towards you know quite radical um monetary and and economic policy so that's not you know the 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 ftr identifying a real threat there you know like corbyn is a democratic socialist um he does want and his followers want to democratize the economy and this is an effort to do so and yes that obviously um undermines capital's uh power of 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 companies and the economy that's what the project is about um they're not they're not being too hysterical there however um, if you look at the act, that's the direction of travel. If you look at the actual nature of proposals, you know, it's uh, you that that would be, I suppose, quite radical in terms of um, of of control within the organisations. But uh, you know, some of these other proposals, worker representatives on boards and that kind of thing. Um, it depends how they, you know, um, how they're framed. It looks here like a much more radical proposal, but it's not. In terms of running a company efficiently, you know, it's not so different to um, some of the arrangements in Europe. But, but you're right. I think you know, the, you do, I don't think that Corbyn or any of his supporters, myself included, need to sort of pretend that um, we don't have ambitions beyond like a sort of uh, workers or unions on on companies' boards. You know, I think we we have to think in more sort of imaginative um, political project. Um, in terms of so, so that was the sort of FT's response to that, and um, the you know some of the other media didn't didn't comment too much on it. I mean, the insofar as there was a BBC response, it came from uh, Roger Mosey, who's a former BBC executive. Now they all seem to move into academia, like Oxford and Cambridge. I can't remember what exactly where he is now. Um, and he wrote a piece for the Guardian. Uh, in which he was very dismissive of the idea of democratizing the BBC, and there was some other commentary around around this. And I think, in that respect, the the idea of democratizing institutions and the economy, it doesn't just upset the sort of um, you know attack dogs of capitalism at the Sun. It 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 also offends the sort of liberal sensibilities of um, people at the Guardian and and the BBC, uh, and so. Well, that yeah, I mean that that seems a, a really key thing, doesn't it? I think because um, I mean I'm often uh, thinking about the way um, people on the left, you know, on the, on the Corbynite left, will attack other members of the Labour Party as, as Blairites, and the people they're accusing often aren't Blairites; they're from other traditions. And you know, what separates the Corbynites from those traditions? It's not 
necessarily a question of, of policy in terms of um, poverty alleviation, for example. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, liberal and soft left journalists who are, you know, on board with much of the manifesto. You know, I don't think Polly Toynbee is lying when she says, you know, this manf- manifesto was great in many respects. But it is precisely that question of, of democratization that they're opposed to, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's exactly right, I think. And the the, the sort of tradition which um, Corbyn comes out of, you know, the, the Benite tradition was, was an effort... Uh, to move away exactly from the sort of statist um, egalitarian social democracy which was associated with that part of the party. I mean, obviously, when it comes to foreign policy, and uh, there's a different sort of picture. Um, but when at least at least domestically, you're right. They the the the, the project of the Benite wing of the party was democratization, and that seems to be uh, offensive not only to yeah the more liberal kind of parts of the party but also the social democratic right which um which you know has has never been particularly democratic let's say in terms of its attitude to uh party democracy but also you know it's just not the the idea of people controlling their own lives is it's very central to that to to the labor left uh, from which you know the, the current leadership emerges um, in a way that it just isn't to the, you know, the traditional social democrats, and that was the the way that they responded to um, the, you know, the capitalist crisis of the 1970s was that, you know, we need to radicalize social democracy and make it more participatory, and the the solution that they saw to that was, you have the labor movement, sorry, the trade unions part of the labor movement, which was much stronger then. And they saw this infrastructure as, uh, as as presenting opportunities for workers' control, which was one of the central sort of influences on, on debates around that time, and which also influenced debate around media reform. You know, so this was one of the key um, elements of the Benite program of the 1970s and the early 1980s was that uh, we could actually get rid of the BBC. They said, get rid of the BBC and and um, and, and ITV, and uh, which were the two existing channels then sorry, to existing media organizations and, and, and decentralize them. So some of these proposals, you know, have a long tradition on the left. And, of course, the right doesn't know that. So when the Sun responded to it and the Telegraph responded to it, the sort of argument they made was, oh, this is just because these people are Corbyn's, you know, enemies because they're saying that he's an anti-Semite and then he's going for them. Um, again, it's not an entirely disingenuous argument. I mean, you know, Corbyn's a socialist and he sees these as correctly as organs of reaction you know in society that need mm. to which should be defeated but the idea that this is a simply a response you know a sort of vindictive response to the press is just you know it's kind of ridiculous really um it's it, it's the other way around of course that the, these press these organizations represent particular interests in society um which which corbyn and the movement that he leads uh, are completely opposed to and uh you know we're, we're well it's here. interesting isn't it i mean they yeah they, they sort of impute their own dictatorial oligarchic practice to to corbyn and the left yeah they, they there was a lot of you know these people just want to um take control of these media organizations you know they want to make them subject them to um the whims of the you know sinister corbyn movement and the rest of it you know they're mm. intolerant of the senate and the rest of it and it's um the thing was, they, they, the, the response was 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 pretty stupid actually from from most quarters because they, they 
the traditional response to the right to this kind of thing is to say, oh, look, you know, the, the left is basically, um, you know, it's an, it's an authoritarian movement. Um, we, we deliver people what they want through the market. Um, the press wants to restrict freedom. And they sort of just went straight back to those kind of classic messages kind of unthinkingly. And they were, I think they were quite tripped up by by Corbyn's speech in this respect. I mean, if so if you look at the BBC, for example, um, and this is what, you know, measures that I've been supporting for some time, was that you need to get rid of governmental influence over the B- BBC altogether. Um, now, this was interpreted by people as being, um, you know, an attempt to take over the BBC, which is, you know, manifestly absurd, because if, if the Corbyn movement is on the brink of government, um, and it was wanted to take over the BBC, it would just use the existing levers of power at the BBC rather than propose <laughs> you would remove the, remove that power altogether. Um, just briefly on that, um, to come back to this democratisation question, I mean, the other very common response you had, and this came more from the Liberals, actually, than, um, than the right, was the resistance against the idea of politicising the BBC. So... Um, and, and the, the, yeah, this, this came from The Guardian and from Roger Mosey and, fr- and from others, which was the idea that you, you shouldn't have electoral structures in the BBC because it's important that the BBC is independent. Um, and this is the, you know, exactly the response that I would expect from the BBC and its supporters. And again, as you say, it, it speaks to a certain tradition of, um, of, of English, sort of high-minded English liberalism, um, which is mainly based on, you know, what people imagine the civil service and the BBC are doing rather than looking at the sort of empirical record of these institutions. But what's so peculiar about it is that, that you know, the institution is already politicised by the fact that the government holds these powers over the BBC. Um, what they mean by... Sorry, and, and just just to be clear, so so the powers that it does hold, so we're talking about um, the government gets to decide whether to renew the BBC's charter, uh, has control over the licence fee and appoints people to the... It used to be the Board of Governors, wasn't it? What is, yeah. is it the, the, the BBC Trust now? Is that no, right? um, it, it was the Board of Governors for most of the BBC's life and, and then it was the BBC Trust and now it's something called the Unitary Board. What that means is that there used to be an oversight, the oversighting board which was the the governors and then the trustees and then below them the managerial board which is the bbc executives now they've emerged into one board so you get sort of executive and non-executive directors based on the corporate governance model um so yeah the, the, exactly those that you mentioned um these are sort of uh mechanisms which you know the the the, the empirical records very clear um has, has been used as um I mean, it's sort of an open secret in British public life that these are mechanisms of political control or at least political coercion over the BBC, which, of course, then affects its broader culture. Um, and, you know, in combination with that, you have a whole set of sort of formal and informal relationships between uh, the people at the top of the BBC and, and Downing Street. I mean, the usual sorts of things you see with the media, actually, in terms of um, source relations and so on. But those formal mechanisms of political control or political accountability, if you want to express them in a, in a, in a nicer light, um, yeah, already exist. And the question, the only question becomes, do, is that a good mechanism of accountability? Is there a better one we could introduce? I think most people at the BBC 
um, and maybe I'm being uncharitable here, would rather be accountable to the government than accountable to license the license fee payers. But that's a very difficult argument for them to make, of course, because their entire um, legitimacy as a public service broadcaster is based on the idea that they're not, in fact, a state broadcaster, that they are, in fact, accountable to the public more broadly. Um, so it's another example of some, an interesting, you know, these interesting sort of proposals, which are, which I think were difficult for different sections of the media to respond to, but also had sort of something for everyone, you know, because even the press quite liked the fact that Corbyn was talking about taxing Google and Facebook because they just can't stand them, you know, because they're undermining their business models and taking all their advertising revenue. Just going back to the, to the interview that you did with um, Dan Wooden, the um, executive editor of The Sun. So one of the things he said during that interview was that um, he was he was making the sort of the, the free market case for, for the current setup of the British media. And, and, you know, he was saying the Guardian and the, the Independent are there. You know, people people can buy them if they wish to. And people don't. People people go and buy by the Sun and the Mail, um, you know, overwhelmingly as, as compared with the uh, the left left wing press. Mm. What would you say to uh, to that kind of claim? Yeah, um, well, it, it sort of makes sense um, on the face of it, doesn't it? Um, if you take consumer markets for granted, it, what what it, what it overlooks is the fact that the, these are not simply consumer relationships in terms of buying the newspaper. Um, the it, it's based on being able to sustain and expand your circulation in a free market, which leads to, uh, which I sort of alluded to earlier on. The, uh, the the economic pressures in terms of um, capital accumulation, in terms of being able to raise funds, in terms of being able to raise money from advertising. Now, so so there's that. There's the fact that actually what, what happened, and this goes back much further than the 20th century, actually. the uh, I mean, historically speaking, this isn't, again, an argument. It's, it's rather difficult to make on talk radio. But um, the... The, the the press uh, was in the um, the early press was suppressed by the state and they the liberals lobbied for a free press so that you know the, the market would be able to decide that the government wouldn't be able to interfere uh, in the market leading to uh, a um, the end of, um, of of levies and certain publishing restrictions and so on. Now, the expectation was that that would lead to an expansion in the radical press, uh, in the working class press. Now, what actually happened wasn't that. The, the, the working class press um, increasingly struggled to maintain itself in the free market because the consumers of those press, that press are less affluent. Uh, they tended to only buy newspapers at moments of sort of political um, upheaval or political successes. So you, you, left media projects will tend to be successful, um, you know, in kind of upsurges of um, popular mobilization, but less so in sort of day-to-day uh, -day, um, circumstances uh, when they can't compete as effectively with um, with right-wing titles and uh, what what it was called the new journalism in the late 19th and early 20th century. So the likes of the sort of Daily Mirror and the Daily Mail, sort of a mix of news I mean, news is a relatively new thing you know it's really with the wires in the uh late victorian period the concept of, of news um as, as we think about it now starts to you know appear in what was you know once more like journals and later became newspapers gossip celebrity stuff you know all of this kind of thing the kind of tabloid um the tabloid uh, offering none of that really it should be said 
um, implies any endorsement of the politics of the paper. And you can look at this, you know, the Sun is a conservative daily, but around 30% of its voters are Labour voters, which is, you know, it's a minority, um, but it's still, still relatively significant. And again, you just look at the um, circulation. The, the facts kind of speak to themselves in terms of the political orientation of these newspapers and the political voting patterns and attitudes of of the public, right? So you can explain that in one of two ways. You can either say, oh, um, people aren't... In fact, you can't explain it in two ways. You can explain it in one way, which is that people are making consumer decisions of these publications which aren't actually based on their um, political values. So then it becomes a question of, you know, is that a good way to run a market? Um, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't if you want the market for entertainment. But if you want a market, let's say, or like a set of institutions that enable people to make good political decisions or a um, which would uh, lead to let's say, a functional political sphere or something like that, then there's a different set of values there. I suppose one thing uh, that occurs with with regards to the, the comparison that, that Wooten's making is that, um, you know, something like The Guardian, it, it's clearly not going to crowd out the sun uh, because it's obviously oriented towards a relatively affluent readership, right? I mean, everything in its, um, you know, the lifestyle sections and, and so on, it's, it's very clear what kind of market it's directed at. And that is just not a mass market. Yeah, I mean, the comparison between The Guardian and The Sun's not the appropriate one anyway. The comparison should be with The Mirror, which has always lagged behind mm. The Sun um, in terms of its circulation, but, you know, not not drastically so. Um and uh, so the sun, the mirror has been a much less successful uh, daily newspaper, but it's always been the sun's closest competitor. And so, yeah, I mean, there are obviously there are relevant questions to ask about um, the the policies of and the the business models of the two papers. Why has the sun tended to be a little bit ahead of the mirror? Um, however, um, the the fact remains, as you say, that the 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 business model, the the intended audience, and the product—you know, the sort of brand of the Guardian—is is, is very different to the Sun. Um, and again, like you, you need to think of this in terms of how markets actually function. If you haven't, if you have an unequal society, you can easily move your product up market, and you don't need as many um, readers because you know if you have more affluent consumers, um, it doesn't matter because your advertising revenue will be much more significant. And, you know, that's why the Financial Times is able to sustain itself on a relatively low readership compared with, you know, these um, mass circulation tabloids, because, you know, it's sort of a niche, it's a political niche, which, um, which, which, which is extremely lucrative. And so it can, can, can keep afloat um, compared to, you know, the, the, the pop, popular press, which is, yeah, a very different sort of um, business model, which relies on, you know, um, sensationalist um, claims and entertainment and, you know, forms of like fake news as it's now um, lamented, which was another thing that seemed to annoy people in Corbyn's speech when he implied that newspapers produce fake news. I think The Guardian said they were disappointed um, by that claim <laughs> as mm. if it was targeted at them. You know, it's sort of extraordinary, really, because I think what that was was that they wanted Corbyn to be talking about 
um, you know, uh, fake news on Facebook and um, and Brexit and and all of that, um, you know, which has come out of its investigative reporting, and they seem just a bit miffed that um, they didn't get that. In the speech, Corbyn points to um, the extremely low regard in which the media is held in Britain, pretty much uh, the least trusted media sector in, in Western Europe. Mm. Do you get much of a sense of how uh, the media explains this to themselves? You, you, does this not cause them to, to pause to a degree and, and wonder about what they're doing? No, I don't think in the least. I'm sure they're aware of it. Um, you know, it's worth saying that levels of trust in the broadcasters are, are rightly much higher, and actually, it's it's different within within the um, within the press. So people are much more trusting of the um, more um, highbrow uh, broadsheet titles than they are of uh, you know the Daily Mail and the Express and the Sun for obvious reasons because. You know, they, they're, they're reporting until relatively recently has tended to be, you know, partisan, but usually accurate, at least with its news. I mean, the Times and the Telegraph have sort of lost the plot completely, in my opinion. I mean, I'm sort of I'm always a bit wary of thinking, oh, well, you know, was there a time when, you know, the Times was a serious newspaper? I think because I remember older people saying that when I was younger, sort of talking about before Murdoch t- took it over or whatever. But it just seemed to me um, just imp- I'm being very impressionistic here. These titles have moved towards a much more um, just tabloidy um, sort of approach. And I don't mean in terms of their sort of style, but just in terms of the lack of professionalism in their reporting. You know, they're mm. just you can't you can't now rely on the Telegraph and the Times to give you any account of what's going on in the world, or at least in the world of of politics. You know, it's, these titles are sort of a joke now, in a way that the Daily Mail, you know, just absolutely willfully distorts things i remember after leaving university speaking to a sub-editor from the mail and maybe i was a little bit more naive about the media at that stage and remember him explaining to me sort of what his job was and i i thought you know it's sort of um checking grammar and so on and you know just tweaking things or cutting down articles he's like no you know you give it you give it the daily mail spin it's like what do you mean you know like immigrants and asylum seekers and all of that um, so, you know, they're, they're aware of what they do, you know, like, but there aren't people sitting at the Daily Mail <laughs> thinking that they're not um, misleading people about stuff. And um, Sarah Sands, who is now editor of the Day, Today programme, when she was at the Telegraph, you know, she tried to shift the news values of the Telegraph in that direction, said, sent a memo that was then leaked that said we should sell stories hard, but just stop short of distortion. Um, played to people's prejudices and you know it's no secret in the media that this is what the tabloid media does and so what's what's really strange and I've, I've never really quite understood the reason for this is that there's also despite this huge difference in sort of professional values between the BBC and you know the reactionary tabloid press and the highbrow press and the Financial Times and the rest of them you know like really very different sorts of institutions in terms of their culture and their business models and their professional ethos there's still this really intense sort of um cross uh cross sectoral solidarity that goes on you know like people Hmm. do see people at the bbc seem to think you know we're all journalists like we should be defending yeah everybody's friends everybody's friends but we're you know we're all basically on the same side because we're all part of the fourth estate or whatever and you know that that um nick davis at the guardian uh sort of in the way that he went after murdoch you know i think really upset a lot of people 
it's sort of seen as, being, seen as being bad form. You can still see the sort of hatred for the Guardian <laughs> at, at, at the Sun and some of the tabloid press of them sort of, you know, these people broke ranks, you know, like what are they mm. doing going after us? But I, th- I think that still operates. I'm no, I've never been able to quite make sense of what the sort of, you know, um, sociological basis of that intense solidarity is. But, you know, you can really see it in play with their sort of nauseating tweeting to each other every time they're doing some sort of Owen Jones pylon. Um, I'd, hmm. I'd like to know. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you enjoy the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. You can also follow on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. And if you really like the show, uh, please do consider donating to the Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash Poll Theory Other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.